Shalom, everyone. Hello and welcome to the table where we are gathering together as disciples of Jesus or by his Hebrew name, Yeshua. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I have been a disciple of Jesus for 38 years and he has been so faithful to me. And um, as I have studied um, the scriptures, you know, the Lord has taught me um, so much by the Holy Spirit. And I have, I've come to learn that there's so much more going on than uh, just my salvation. There's this whole storyline from Genesis to Revelation. And if we are not intentional in seeking the Lord in truly reading his word, then we might actually miss it. We might miss so much of the entire point of what the Lord is doing, and um, we don't want to miss it. And there's just so much also that if we miss, we actually could be deceived. And so it's so important that we're in this word. Even Jesus said, you know, if my words remain in you, that we are to abide in Christ, and that's how we abide. And we're living in a time uh, when, you know, there's all of this relevant truth, whatever you believe is okay, as long as it doesn't offend me, you know, anybody can believe anything they want to believe in today's day and age, and, and it's fine as long as we're not offending people, but the reality is, what we find in the Word of God is that there truly is an absolute truth, which means that there are those that are wrong. And so we can find the truth of God's word in this scripture that God has given us. And the neat thing about it is it's kind of like, you know, we have um, on our phones, we have a music library and we can pull up any artists that we want to hear from and we can hear their song. Well, you know what? We've got this word and we can open it up and hit play as we read God's word and hear God's voice talking to us, giving us instructions, guiding us through life, and also unfolding an incredible story about what he is doing and how it relates to us, how we're included in it, but there's more going on. And so we're excited to journey with you here at the table um, through the word of God for an entire year, and then we'll just start over again next year. Um, and really what we want to do is focus on God's word. We want to focus on the word because there's so many voices out there in our day and age today. And there's so many people who don't know what is truth. You know, how do I know what is the truth? How do I know what to believe? And the Bible talks about Berean Jews that when Paul, the apostle Paul, came to their town in Berea and he was uh, preaching to them the gospel, they began searching the scriptures every day to see if what Paul, Paul, the one who wrote one third of the New Testament, they were checking him out to see if what he said was true. Well, we should be just like that as well. We should be like the Berean Jews searching the scriptures to be sure if what the pastor or what a leader, what anyone tells us lines up with God's word. And you don't have to um, have a background in theology to understand and discern this word. In fact, the Bible tells us that we can't actually come to this word and understand it any other way than the Holy Spirit giving us revelation so that we can understand. So the Bible tells us we don't even need a teacher, although God did 
appoint preachers and apostles and prophets. He appointed people to provide the message, but he said, you don't even need a man to teach you that the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you in all truth. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to approach this time in the word, our time in fellowship, um, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures to us. So I'm about to introduce a couple of people and, and I'll start with Pastor Sylvia because I'd like for her to start us out in prayer. Uh, she's a mighty woman of the Lord. She actually had a long career in the military. She's retired from the military and now she's a general in God's army. And when I met Pastor Sylvia, that was one of the things about her testimony that stood out to me is that uh, she had this sense of calling that the Lord has appointed her to be a, um, to head up and to continue to um, uh, build up an, an end times army for the Lord. You know, those who are um, hungry for truth and for the righteousness um, that we are to be seeking. So without uh, any further ado, I'll turn it over to Pastor Sylvia for prayer and then for her to share a little bit about herself either before or after, and then we'll we'll move on. And I'd like to also introduce you to Jed afterwards. And Jed and Pastor Sylvia and I will be hosting these Bible studies. Um, when we get to Jed, he'll give a little better understanding as to the format of how things are going to go here. But um, at this time, I'll just let, allow Pastor Sylvia uh, to come on up and uh, pin her to the screen. Pastor Sylvia, are you with us? I am. I'm here. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Excited to be here and looking forward to all that God is going to do. I'll do the brief introduction of myself. You've already done it, but just to elaborate and say that um, the most important thing to me and why I believe in what we're doing is uh, because there is so many things that are untruth, but the word of God is the absolute truth. It is amazing. It is wonderful. It is the bread in which we are to eat, you know, and I know that God wants us to know what his truth is, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have had them to be inspired to write it. And what I really want is for, we need to know all of it. You know, I think most of us don't buy a manuscript or a novel. I know I don't, and I love to read. And I never start in the middle and then the end and figure I know the whole book. I know that it is from cover to cover. And that is my desire is to just be able to share with those who want to go on a journey at the table, discovering the truth of God's word from the very beginning all the way through the end. It is powerful. It is truly what we need every single day. So I'm excited. And then the other thing is, you know, I was talking to the Lord and I was saying, God, it's amazing because I was in the army for over 28 years and it's not a Christian organization. Uh, it's no more Christian than the person you're working with or working for at the time. But one of the things that they did really well was, believe it or not, they discipled us. They discipled us and helped us to understand 
what it meant to be a soldier. They took their experience, their expertise, and they willingly shared it, as well as all the regulations, the uh, standard operating procedures, and all of that, because they wanted to make sure that we were well-rounded and that we understood what it meant to be a soldier. Well, we have been called to be soldiers in the Lord's army, and that is so that we can uplift his kingdom, bringing glory and honor to his name. And we need to understand what that is. Tidbits here and there, that's great. But having the full understanding and the full counsel of the word of God is what we should be seeking, especially in this time when there's such waves of deception and those waves are going to increase and only knowing the truth will be able to stand and to be able to discern is that really what God said or was that taken out of context? And I think that we got an example of that in Luke chapter four, because everything that Satan challenged Jesus with, they, you could find an aspect of it in the word of God. But Jesus came back and said, it is written, it is written, because the truth is what will set us free. So I'm excited and I'm glad to be here with all of you. And I hope that you'll prepare your hearts right now as we begin to enter into the presence of the most holy God. I want you to just begin to think and meditate on the fact that he is holy, that he is majesty, that there is none like him, that only he is the Lord our God, and that he chose you, that you could come so that you could join and begin to exalt and lift him up and glorify who he is, so that he could use you as witnesses, so that his truth can go forward, because all of this is about him and nothing about us. Oh, precious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we come just to give you thanks. We give you thanks because you are the Lord our God. We give you thanks, Lord God, because you do not want us to remain where we are, wherever we are, but you want us to rise up and to go deeper into your truth. You want us to be able to have an encounter with you and know that we have experienced you and those encounters are, in, are those encounters are tangible because you are and you have made yourself available to us. You are the one who created the heaven, the earth, the stars, and the moon. There was nothing that was made that was not made by you. And that's including what you have invited all of us to be partakers of on tonight, to meet at this table with you so that you can give us the bread that we need for the journey, just as you did when they were in the wilderness after you brought them out of Egypt and they found themselves in a place where there was no food, there was no water, there was no meat, and you provided everything that they need and some more. Their clothes did not grow old or did they wear out. Their shoes, God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so therefore we invite you to come and lead us every step of the way. Because we humbly come just to seek you, to hear from you, and to know what it is you would have us to do. But we realize that as always, there is no life worth living apart from you. 
But we know even more so with the challenges and with all the things that are going on, how we need you, Lord God, for you are the light of the world. You are the living water and you are the one that we desire to partake. I pray, Father, that you will have your way and that every person that's represented here on tonight will truly encounter you. Let there be nothing that we do or say that does not come from you. And everything that you say, may it be, Lord, bringing glory and honor to your name. For we are truly hungry and thirsty, and we come to acknowledge that only you can feed us. Have your way on tonight, Lord God. Have your way in our lives, this day and forevermore, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And so now, without further ado, we'll also introduce you to our brother, Jed Robine. And Pastor Sylvia and I actually met Jed in his home um, where he lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we were on, at that time, what we had coined as an Abrahamic journey. And the reason that we called it that is because we literally set out from my home in Greenville, South Carolina with another brother in the Lord named Dean Bai from Return Ministries. He was from Canada. Pastor Sylvia's from Florida. We met at my home and we ended up going because Dean had been prompted by the Lord um, to go on this journey, not knowing where we were going, where we would lay our head, what direction we were headed to. But I will tell you, as we went on this journey all along the way, it truly was one divine appointment after another. And that is how Jed Robine came into our lives and so I will turn it over to Jed now to let him share a little bit about himself and um, a little bit more about this table and bread for the journey. Thanks, Krista uh, and Sylvia. Everyone, it's, it's great to be with you tonight. Um, really, what we're about to engage in is uh, born out of some conviction, some shared conviction. Uh, as Krista mentioned, we had met earlier this summer, but uh, as we've gotten to know one another, over the, the, the past several months, we've realized that the Holy Spirit's been preparing us on our own discipleship journeys. I've been a believer for over 30 years. Um, and the last couple of years in particular, I've just felt the drawing of the Holy Spirit to come and eat the scroll. Um, you know, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, as, as Sylvia's kind of highlighted that. But as culture gets more and more um, harsh, more and more godless, uh, and there's more and more division occurring politically, culturally, across the board. Um, I've just felt the Holy Spirit really emphasizing the idea of family, that we're called to be one in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender. Uh, we've got to come together. And what upon what are we going to build that fellowship? Um, and we don't need any more teachers. We don't need the opinions of men and women. We need the, the living word of God. As the disciple said to Jesus, you have the words of spirit and life. Where else are we going to go? And so we're in days of great challenge. And so as we've been praying together, we've just felt the spirit drawing this uh, towards bread for the journey. The idea of us going on, you know, we're just going to sail through the scriptures, um, you know, the whole counsel of God. And it's important to have your own time with the Lord, but he's also called us into community. And I've been in other fellowships. In fact, I'm in one uh, here in the in this region, in the greater Washington, D.C., Virginia uh, area with some other pastors reading through the scriptures and the interplay and the dynamic of learning from other disciples, 
as they, God shows them uh, insights and reflections from the scriptures, I've realized he's saying things to me, but man, I need what he's giving Krista and I need what he's giving Bernie and I need what he's downloading to other believers. Um, I am enriched by their learning. And that's at the heart of this idea of discipleship is learning. And the Lord showed me, you know, a long time ago, what is, you know, who's the focus of the teacher and the student interchange? He just asked me that question. And I thought about it and I was like, well, it's, it's gotta be the pupil. So that's right. You know, the pupil, the question that is in the pupil's heart is the most important question in the room. And when you look at how Jesus interacted with disciples, he brought out the question or the issue that was in their heart in order to help them connect with God. And that's at the heart of what we're doing here is to encourage one another as fellow pilgrims, fellow journeyers, uh, disciples on our own journey that we could walk together, not as any one of us are the teachers. And we want to be very clear, like Jed, Kristen, and Sylvia are facilitators. We don't have all the answers, you know, but we know the one who does. And we want to point, always point people to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And we want to take time to sit and learn from him. Um, you know, I'm always moved the last couple of years in particular, you know, where Jesus said, you think you're rich, but you're, you're poor. You think you're well-dressed, but you're really naked and ashamed, right? You think you see, but you're blind. So come to me and I'll, I'll give you gold and I'll give you clothing and I, I will, I'll, you know, uh, give you eyesight so you can see. We live in, the, in a day and age where there's a cancel culture where everyone's being canceled. <laughs> Jesus has a counsel culture where he counsels us to come to him so that he can heal us. He wants to work with us. He wants to restore us. But we've got to be like those wise bridesmaids and get oil for our lamps. And so that's the spirit in which we want to, we want to just lay out that foundation and that invitation to, to whosoever will come to come. And, and so, uh, Jed, Krista, and Sylvia, we will be, you know, regular facilitators, but the Lord's going to send some others. In fact, there's some others that are, are probably going to be coming on here in the next few weeks uh, to also facilitate. And so what will happen just from a structural perspective, there'll be 15 to 20 minutes where the facilitator will kind of queue up uh, some reflections that they've gleaned over the portion of scripture that we've read in the week. And we're going to be going through about 40 chapters a week, um, sometimes less, sometimes more, but that's a lot of ground to cover and to try and do an hour-long discussion. So our responsibility for the Lord is just to, to hear what the Spirit's saying, to focus in on a, a passage to really drill down. And so about 15 to 20 minutes will be uh, exploratory reflections from a facilitator, and then we'll quickly open it up from there for about 40 to 45 minutes of uh, discussion, question, processing, and just chewing the revelation of that scripture. And that's a very Hebraic idea, midrash, to kind of chew on the word of God together and glean. And what he's saying to us this January will not be what the Spirit's saying to us uh, next January because the word of God is alive. And so you can never read it too much. And this isn't about just knowing the Bible. This is about knowing God, you know? And like he held up those scriptures to the Jewish Pharisees and he said, you think in these scriptures you have life, but these declare me, come to me that I may give you life. And so this is what we always want to point to is this is a doorway through which we can build a relationship with God and experience him. And no matter where we are on our discipleship journey, maybe we've been walking with the Lord one day. Maybe we've been walking with the Lord for 80 years. We're all learning 
we're all gleaning and we all need the master to be imparting his word to us every day so that we can eat the scroll and be prepared for what he has for us and to encourage one another in our in our faith. So, Christo, I'll kick it back to you. Uh, I'm just excited about this opportunity and appreciate uh, the Tour of Truth family. So God bless you guys. Amen. And also, I want to point out there's going to be breadcrumb videos. So we're also, as the facilitators, going to every day have some kind of video that'll be posted at tourofTruth.org, which is we're calling breadcrumb, but it's going to be a highlight of commentary um, that can help point to some other things or some things maybe that will just engage you to feel connected with um, everyone through the week as well. And then we'll meet again on Mondays. So if you aren't familiar, if you're coming on from online from um, something maybe you saw Facebook book right now. Um, the reading plan is at tourofTruth.org. You can find how to download the app onto your phone as well. Um, and so today- Just we're one thing real quick, Krista, about the breadcrumbs. It's going to be focused on that particular day's reading. Yes. So we might, we might read a few chapters in that daily portion, but the facilitator that's doing the video will just take five minutes and give you kind of real-time reflections on what they feel the Spirit's saying and stood out to them just so that we can because trying to cover that much ground on a Monday is going to be pretty uh, intense. So just having those little touches throughout the week on the daily readings will be helpful. Right. And so since we didn't have the breadcrumbs all through the last 10 days, uh, that means that today is going to be a little different than what we intend it to be moving forward. Um, whereas uh, between Pastor Sylvia, Jed and myself, we just thought we probably need to unpack Genesis a little bit. So I'm going to um, share um, more one-sided for just a bit. And then feel free to engage though along the way if someone has something from the spirit, but I'm gonna put up a slide presentation and we're gonna kind of walk through some of what we've already read and just make sure we're laying some groundwork as we begin this journey into the year and into the word. So give me a moment to share my screen. All right. So obviously we're starting in the beginning in Genesis. And I want to point out that the Bible is one book with a single drama that's running all the way through it, and it's the drama of redemption. You know, the first few chapters of Genesis, it's giving us the stage, the cast, and the plot, which open up the whole story. Um, Genesis is called one of the five books of Moses, but it's actually covering events that happened 300 years before Moses was even born. And there's no doubt that he got part of this information from memories that might have been passed on, either in written or spoken form. But there are just many things in the book that couldn't have possibly come from any other person. There are things that are just unknowable unless, you know, God had directly revealed them to him. And so this is particularly true of Genesis chapter 1. Um, and I'm going to ask Chantel, could you help admit people? Um, I'm not going to be able to do that. Thank you. Already so, doing it. Thank you very much. There, um, in this time of Genesis chapter one, there weren't any reporters around, you know, when God made the heavens and the earth. So we wouldn't know what we know about creation unless God had told Moses how he did it and what he did. So really we're considering the beginning, not of the words of Moses, but of the word of God. And another point I want to make is that Genesis is the beginning of the Bible. So by that very fact, it's the basis of the Bible. It's laying the foundation 
foundation that every other book in the Bible will build upon. So the God who's talked about in the rest of the Old Testament is always described as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we didn't have the book of Genesis, we wouldn't know what that means. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has not changed. And this is our God too. So if we want to know what he's like, then we have to study the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was true about God for them will also be true about God for us. So I'm going to just run through a couple of highlights of things that Genesis shows us. Um, in the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 to 2, it's the origins of the world. Um, then we've got the origins of the nations in chapters 2 to 11. And then 3, it's the origins of Israel in chapters 12 to 50. And the key themes for Genesis is that God is the creator, sin's consequences are disastrous, that God's ultimate purpose is to restore man to fellowship and relationship with him, and something very important to make sure you have on your list, that the purpose will be worked, worked out through Abraham's children, the nation of Israel. And so that's part of the story that we've got to connect. And there has been a disconnect in church history with understanding how Israel fits. Um, we'll talk about how, why that disconnect happened another time. So I'm gonna continue forward, but um, I wanna kind of cover some of Genesis that we've read so we can unpack a little bit of uh, what the Holy Spirit is showing us. Adam and Eve, you know, they had two boys after they were expelled from the garden, Cain and Abel, and they were both very different. One boy had faith and the other didn't. And that was the ultimate difference. We're told this in the New Testament. The scripture in the New Testament gives us a little bit of light on this chapter. And I believe that's the biggest difference in any family, the children who believe in God, in his way, and those who don't. So Cain believed that God existed but that doesn't make faith. Faith is much deeper. Faith is coming to God in God's way. And it's quite obvious that even though it's not written here, that the family had a place of worship because they were bringing offerings, the Bible talks about. But more than that, they had a proper way to worship, which clearly God had revealed to them. They already knew that the way to worship God was the way of sacrifice for sin. It was the way of death and bloodshed. And reading between the lines, it's obvious that Adam and Eve had taught this to their boys. So now we come to this occasion that we've read in scripture here when these two brothers came to God as working men. The Bible says that Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd, but both of them were not accepted when they brought their sacrifices to the Lord. So when it was um, harvest time, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought a gift and it says that he brought the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. And it says that the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry and he looked dejected is how the scripture reads. And so we can read that and we can wonder why would God accept one and not the other? It's because he has principles on which he accepts a person. The principles are first, the offerer, the offeror must be right and the offering must be right. The offerer and the offering. And so notice that it says that God accepted Abel, the offerer and his offering, but wouldn't accept Cain and his offering. So the question we'd have is why not? So I wanna look at um, the first thing we need to recognize and it was Cain's heart. 
and his attitude. Cain didn't believe he needed to come God's way. He was prepared basically to patronize God. He was prepared to bring his own gifts. He was prepared to give God something of his income, but he wasn't prepared to come God's way. His arrogance is revealed in his anger when God wouldn't accept him for that reason. So you can tell immediately by his reaction to God that this man's heart wasn't right. It wasn't in a right state to be worshiping. He had the wrong attitude towards God. He had the wrong attitude, attitude towards his brother. Um, and it appears that to get the offering that God needed, Cain would have had to ask Abel for it. And I imagine that would have been pretty humbling for him to do. You know, Cain wanted to bring the fruit of his own work, but he knew perfectly well that God wanted slain lambs. Abel knew, you know, Abel, he actually knew that. So uh, why wouldn't Cain have known that? So it's quite clear that, you know, Abel had a slain lamb, but Cain wasn't going to ask his brother for an offering because Cain was probably a proud man. Cain was the natural man is the point. Cain was the man who's coming on his own terms, not God's. Cain was the man who was prepared to worship, but on his terms. Cain came and God said, I can't accept you. You know, I can't accept you, Cain, and I can't accept your offering either. And the Bible says he was angry. So here are two kinds of worship. And still to this day, we have the person who worships on their own terms, the man who'll come and give his money, give his time, give their talents, but give only what they want to give. And then there's the person who won't come on the grounds of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, one of them was bringing the fruits of his own labor and the other was recognizing the need for the blood of the slain lamb. So it's humbling to recognize and it requires faith to recognize it. Abel had faith and Cain didn't. So Cain was angry, it says, and resentful about this. And God said, Cain, if you do well, I'll accept you. You don't need to be angry. Just make right what's wrong. Come in the right way and in the right attitude and I'll accept you. But Cain, if you don't, sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching at the door of your heart and will spring in and seize you is what it's saying. Cain, you must master this. You must master this resentment, this anger. You must come my way. It was a desperate appeal. So the tragedy is that we know that sin jumped into Cain's heart and sprang on him and it mastered him just like God said it would. The next thing that Cain did was to spring on Abel and kill him. And so the Bible says in Genesis 4, 8, that one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So it's a really tragic story, but we also need to realize at this point, Cain had never heard of murder. There'd never been a murder. He was the first one to think of it. This was a new act for one man to kill another man. God comes to Cain in the same way he came to his mother and his father before him to Adam and Eve with a question, not because God wanted to know. God knew perfectly well, but the Bible says that Abel's blood was shouting from the soil, but God was still asking him, Cain, I want you to tell me where, where's Abel? Basically, he was saying, confess what you've done. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain was basically saying, my brother's not my responsibility. You go find him. Cain didn't say my sin is more than I can bear. He still didn't even confess his sin. There was only one thing Cain was sorry about, and it was that he'd been caught. He wasn't sorry for what, he'd done, what he had done. He was sorry for the consequences. 
So there's a foreshadowing in this story of Cain and Abel. They became two groups in the human race who tried to get to God in different ways. And there will always be anonymity between them. Remember in Genesis chapter three, God said there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of Satan. And we're told in 1 John um, chapter three that Cain is of the devil's seed. Let me put that up on the screen. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. The real difference between them was that Cain represented the way of the flesh and Abel represented the way of the spirit, the way of the natural man and the way of God, the way of coming on the grounds of what you've done and saying, God, you must accept what I've done or the way of coming on the grounds of a sacrifice of the Lamb of God. There will always be this enmity and we see it all the way through history between those of the world and those of the saints of God. In chapter six and seven, <clears throat> we read about Noah and the flood and we see a perfect balance between God's justice and his mercy. Where sin abounded, grace abounded. The emphasis the Bible gives us in this story is on the ark. It's the eight people who were saved rather than on the thousands or perhaps even millions who weren't because it's not God's desire to draw our attention to the destruction of the wicked, but to the salvation of those who believed. The Bible reminds us that man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here it says that he looked at the imaginations of people and we see three very strong words. Every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. You can't get a stronger statement than that. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. God, God's indignation was so much that his feelings came in and God said, I'm sorry that I made man. I'm sorry I, I ever even did it. So the Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart, Genesis 6, 6. Is there any sentence in scripture that's sadder than that? You know, that that's a heavenly indignation and it points to an important truth in scripture. How does God deal with a world like ours? He offers two extreme absolutes, punishment for sin or pardon for those who believe. And there's nothing else in between. He doesn't do what most of us do, which is putting up with situations, trying to just keep things going, you know, maybe saying, well, no one's perfect. God says, we've got to get things right. So I must destroy what's wrong. But before I do, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you every opportunity to make things right. God must have things right because he's a righteous God. But we see that in this totally corrupt world at that time, there was one man that had resisted the pressures of society. <clears throat> in a world where all of the marriages probably seemed to be going wrong, there was one man that was married to one wife in a godly way. Have you ever thought about how difficult that it might've been for Noah to be in the middle of such wickedness? There are two things that were told about Noah. The first is that he enjoyed divine favor or grace. And I think that's really neat to point out because this, this is the first time that the word grace occurs in the Bible, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Where sin abounded, grace abounded. Where you find the judgment of God on sin somewhere near, you'll find the grace of God because that's what God is like. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the phrase in the eyes of means that God loved to look at Noah. And isn't that an awesome contrast? God saw the wickedness of men and all the earth, but God loved to look at Noah. 
He loved to look down and say, look at that man. There's one man who walks with me. We know one other thing about Noah. He was a preacher, far from being one of those who's only concerned to save their own soul. Noah was desperately concerned to get others saved too. And so he preached, but hardly anyone listened to him except his wife and his son, sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, a congregation of seven, basically. The second thing we're told is that violence filled the earth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now I would imagine that violence looks like violence, rioting, marching, fighting in the streets, children hitting parents, parents hitting children. So if you wonder why we study ancient history, just watch the news. The society that God destroyed was destroying itself with an ark as large as Noah's. Um, many people could have escaped if they'd wanted to. God provided all that was needed for this and God's mercy waited 100 years, but because God in, in his righteousness, he can't wait forever. So the amazing thing to me is this, God planned every detail. God didn't say, Noah, I'm gonna send a flood and you just get out the best way you can. God said, Noah, I'll tell you exactly what to do if you'll do it. One of the most exciting phrases in the chapter, which occurs three times, is that Noah did all that God commanded him. That is faith. It was the silliest thing to do. It was the most irrelevant thing to do. And it was the most incredible thing to do. And because Noah did all that God commanded, God condemned the world. And here's how. Not one of them would ever be in the position to say to God, I didn't know there was a flood coming. In other words, do you see that Noah's actions not only saved him, but they also condemned others? And this is actually one of the tragedies of preaching because although it will save people, others will be condemned because they won't be able to say to God one day, I never heard the truth. I never knew how to get ready for all this. I never knew the way of escape. So Noah building his ark in the middle of dry land, he was, a, he was an example to others. Our world is actually heading for a repeat of Noah's day. And I know that because Jesus said that when he returns, the days will be as the days of Noah. But as for the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be. So how do we prepare for it? Are you prepared to believe God's word? Faith is taking God at his word and Noah took God at his word. He believed that if God said it, it was gonna happen. It was going to. So we get ready by believing in Jesus Christ. That's how we get into the ark because the ark is Jesus. Another thing to notice is that chapters one to 11, they deal with thousands of years, but chapters 12 to 20, 25, they only deal with one lifetime. It's as if God says um, that, that all that was going on before was prefaced, but now starting in chapter 12, this is where the real story begins. So Abraham is a father in four ways. First of all, he's the father of the Arabs. If you want to understand the Arab-Israeli conflict, you have to read Genesis. If you want to understand how it all began, you have to go back 4,000 years. 
Abraham is revered by the Arabs as their father. His first child was Ishmael, and Ishmael is the father of the Arab races. Secondly, Arab is not only, I'm sorry, Abraham is not only the father of the Arabs and incidentally revered by all Muslims, but he's also the father of the Jews. It was his grandson, Jacob, whose name was later changed by God to Israel and was the name given to the nation. So he's also the father of all the Jews and they revere him also. And then thirdly, Jesus revered him. And if you study the family tree of Jesus in Matthew one, the first man mentioned in it is Abraham. And then fourthly, Abraham is the father of all Christians. In the New Testament, he's said to be the father of all who share his faith. So the promise is received by faith, it says in Romans 4, 16. It is a free gift and we are certain to receive it whether or not we live according to the law of Moses if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. So there are three things about Abraham that we need to notice. And I'm gonna see if I actually had that scripture. Oh, I did, there we go, sorry. <clears throat> but there are three things that we need to notice about Abraham, which are all important to understand from his life. And first, um, his faith in God. Someone is called Abraham, the Christopher Columbus of faith. And I like that title because it means the man who pioneered it. He was the first, a man who went out into the unknown as a complete act of faith. God didn't show him where he was going to go, but he went. And then second, God didn't show him how he could have a son, but he believed that because God said he was going to, that he would. And thirdly, God didn't tell him why, he was asking him to sacrifice his son, but Abraham was prepared to do it. So if you wanna know what faith is, it's this, to believe in God to the point that you'll do what he says, even if he doesn't tell you where, how, or why. The trouble is that without faith, we want answers to these questions. Why doesn't God do this? How can God do that? Where is God gonna lead it all to? We wanna know the answers before we'll just trust him. The greatest thing said about Abraham is in the New Testament. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, God said to Abraham, you're not a good man, but I'll accept you on the grounds of your faith. You don't have righteousness to offer me, but I'm prepared to accept faith instead. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. The Bible is the most honest book that we're ever going to read. It never presents its heroes as flawless characters. Already in the first chapter, we've read about Abraham lying about his wife. So here's a man who lies, a man who does things to save himself that are wrong, a man who's concerned about number one. Abraham's not presented to us as a saint, <clears throat> but you know he's pr presented to us um, not as somebody who's free from faults is what I'm trying to get at. He's presented to us as a man who believed God. That's all. The Bible tells us about all of his weaknesses and all of his mistakes. That's how I was accepted too. That's what makes me a daughter of Abraham. Not because I'm good, not because I'm perfect, but because I believe what God says and who he says he is. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the call of God as it has always been. Leave the world behind and come to God. 
When Jesus went to the fishermen of Galilee, he said, drop your fishing, drop your nets, forsake that and follow me and I will make you. It was the same thing. God told Abraham, in place of your country, I'll make you a great nation. In place of your relatives who normally would have looked after you, I'll bless you. In place of your father's house, I'll make you a great name and make, make you a, uh, the father of a new house. So this is God's offer to us. Drop this and you can have that. Drop that handful of mud and you could have the handful of gold. Leave this behind and you can come into this. Many of us try to have the blessing and at the same time hold on to the world. I don't know that there's ever been a person who knew the blessing of God that wasn't called to give things up. <clears throat> you know, I think that Abraham, as he set, on, uh, set out on his journey, that he probably uh, was thinking that God was gonna take him to some land that was a new territory. I probably would have thought that, you know, maybe like a land that was empty. And when he got to the land of the Canaanites, he pitched his tent and he saw it was full of people, but he had obeyed. And I want you to notice something here because it's a big lesson. As soon as he, um, as soon as he finds out um, what God was saying, he obeyed. You know, I, he said, as soon as he finds out what God was saying first, God appeared to him a second time is what had happened when um, he obeyed. God appeared to him the second time and told him the next thing. So if you want to know why God doesn't guide you or give you further direction in your life, we have to ask this question. Have you already responded to what he's already told you to do? And if you haven't, then you're not yet in the place that you ought to be. So why would you expect him to say anything more? God never spoke to Abraham, Abraham in Haran because God had said, go to that land and I'll show you. And we know he was talking about Canaan. So I think many Christians get stuck at this point. Maybe God has given guidance and then there's just silence. But why should God give us more if we haven't lived up to what he's already asked us to do? So the point is when God um, spoke to Abraham next, it was because he first did what he, he did what he first told him to do. But the moment that Abraham is where God wants him to be, God says, now I'm going to tell you the next thing. And the next thing is beautiful. God says, I'm going to give you what I've shown you. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He didn't tell him that before. He just told him to get out and go to the land. I'll show you. He didn't say what would happen when he got there. He just said, I'm going to bless you. When he got there and he found it full of people, I'm sure Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Then God said, it's all right. I'm going to give you the land. All you can see, as I said before, if you want to understand the Arab-Israeli conflict, then you need to read Genesis 12, which is basically going to uh, explain that the title to the land, the whole land of Israel, was given to Israel by God. The earth doesn't belong to the first one who grabs it. I know humans operate on that assumption. So the Arabs, you know, they say that they were there before the Jews, so they should have it. But it was actually the Turks that were there before the Arabs. So the Turks should have it, but the Jews were there before the Turks. So the Jews should have it. And then the Canaanites were there before the Jews. So the Canaanites should have it, but there aren't any Canaanites around now, just Turks and Arabs. Human beings are gonna say, as long as we can keep the peace, let whoever have it. But the reality is that's how we argue on earth. But the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You know, this is God's land. And so it's about what the Lord has instructed. He has said, this is an everlasting covenant. So God told Abraham that he was going to give him the land. And later into chapter 15 and 16, Abraham tells God that he's worried about something else. 
He says, but I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. So what's all this going to be for if I don't have a son? So he was basically saying, even if you bless me, who am I going to pass it on to? I don't have anyone to pass on the rewards. So what's the point in giving it to me? So now we come to verse six, which is the most important verse in the whole new, or I'm sorry, the whole Old Testament. It's the peak of Abraham's life. He was actually already 86 years old. He had no son and his wife was past, past the childbearing age. And the Bible says, then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. So Abraham could have said three things. He could have said, I don't believe it. He could have said what most people would say, I'll believe it when I see it. Or he could have said, Lord, I believe you. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now that's the most important statement because it's the beginning of faith in the Bible at the deepest level. Faith is to believe in a person and a proposition. It's not just to think that there's a God, it's to believe that what God says is true. Faith is not just saying, I think there's a God up there. It's saying, I believe what he says he'll do. That's what real faith is. And there are a lot of people who say today, you can believe in God without believing God's word. You don't need to, you know, you can take bits and pieces of the Bible and just take the parts that you agree with, but that's not true. The Bible says that the faith that was accounted to Abraham as righteousness was that he believed God, believed God. He believed what God said. So it's critical. And it means also that we need to be holy as the Lord is holy, because that's what he's told us. You must be holy as I am holy. Perfect as he is perfect, clean as he is clean, pure as he is pure. It means being absolutely righteous in thought, word, deed, character, everything. And there's no doubt at all that Abraham had already done a lot of wrong things and he couldn't possibly offer God righteousness and neither can any of us. God took Abraham's book and he wrote across the whole book, faith. He closed the book and said, Abraham's righteous. That's one of the most astonishing statements in the whole Bible. The Bible saying that God is prepared to accept you as righteous on the ground of believing in him and his word. This opens up the possibility of what is called justification by faith. It opens up the possibility of a person who's never done a good thing in their life getting into heaven. God was essentially saying that night to Abraham, I've closed your book in heaven. I've written faith across your record and I accept you as righteous because you believe me. Abraham is held before us, not as a righteous man or a man without weaknesses, but as one who believed God. Now, Sarah, she was actually called Sarai at the time before her name was changed by God. So Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Imagine that. Just kidding. Chapters 15 and 16, they have a huge contrast. After the great faith that we've seen from chapters um, 15 and chapter 16, uh, chapter 16 introduces a struggle. Ten years had passed, and the son that God had promised Abraham had not yet come. And so I'm sure that Sarah was actually worried about it. She knew that God had promised Abraham a son, and I imagine that she was frustrated because she couldn't give him one. She probably felt like there was no hope, humanly speaking. So as many of us would do, she comes up with a solution. 
And it's strange to us, but it wasn't to them because archeologists digging in Ur of the Chaldeans, they've discovered that it was actually a common practice there, that if your wife couldn't give you a son, that you could take another woman to have a son, then bring him up as your own. So Sarah says, Abraham, God promised you a son. I can't give you one, so here's my maid, Hagar. Have one by her and we'll raise it as our own. It'll be your son. Seems logical. She's past the childbearing age. And Abraham might've actually thought, maybe that's how God's gonna do it. So Hagar bore Abraham a son and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abraham was 68 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. And at the end of the chapter, Abraham's son Ishmael, we see that he's born and Abraham had to wait 15 more years before he got his next son, Isaac. And it's interesting that even though Hagar, the maid, ran away when she was mistreated by Sarah, God sent her back because it was Abraham's responsibility to care for the boy until he was old enough to look after himself. But the real problem in chapter 16 was not that Abraham lacked faith because he still believed that he would have descendants. The one thing that Abraham lacked was patience. He couldn't wait for God to answer you know, to the problem that he had by not having a son yet. He, he was on his timing and he thought that he had to figure it out, but it was in God's time. And when somebody came along with a shortcut, namely his wife in the flesh, he accepted that instead of waiting by faith. Of course, we're even worse in a day of instant everything and we want instant answers to prayers. God's never in a hurry. The problem is that we're in a hurry. So now Isaac, the son of promise, has been born when Abraham was 100 years old. Abraham, it says, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. It seemed like everything was going fine until he was just about three years old. And then Ishmael, his older brother, was in his early teens, and he was jealous, and he began to hate Isaac, the Bible says. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He's not going to share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, they represent the deepest division of the human race. There's a fundamental gulf between them, and it's the biggest difference in the human race between the Ishmaels and the Isaacs. The Lord calls them sheeps and goats. And these two boys represent two entirely different kinds of people. It's the division of those who are born of the flesh and those who are born of the spirit. It's illustrated in the New Testament by Paul. It's written that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave and one from his wife. This true story is an illustration of God's two ways of helping people. One way was by giving them his laws to obey. He did this on Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Mount Sinai, by the way, is called Mount Hagar by the Arabs. As believers, we are among the children that God promised, just as Isaac was. So we who are born of the Holy Spirit are persecuted now by those of the world, just as Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. The scriptures say that God told Abraham to send away the slave and her son because the slave son wasn't the child of promise. In simple language, 
All the Ishmaels of this world are here because they've been born of the flesh and they'll try to inherit the kingdom of God by trying to be good, by trying to be helpful. And they'll fail because that is the way to slavery. All who are Isaacs have been born again of the spirit and will receive an inheritance because of faith. And that's the difference. So I want us to look, we're almost closing here, but I want us to look at uh, two scriptures in the New Testament as we come to a close that make this point. Galatians 4, starting at verse 22 says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing the children of slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children, but the, but the Jerusalem above is free and she's our mother. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted he who was born according to the spirit, so also is it now. Romans nine verses six to nine explain it this way. Not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. So he did have a son and Abraham... Um, God had the son of promise, which was Isaac. And we might think that God would let Abraham enjoy the fruits of his faith in his old age. It was time for settling down, maybe enjoying life. He was actually a hundred years old. Retirement didn't actually seem unrealistic, but God took Abraham at that point for the biggest test of his whole life, the biggest proof of his faith that had ever been. And I know you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. So we're going to wrap up here and I want to point out some parallels that we find here with the cross because we need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross it wasn't Pilate who put them put him there or Ananias or Caiaphas it, it wasn't Herod or any of the others that took part or the soldiers who drove the nails in his hand the Bible says it was the father who put him on the cross can you sense Isaac's feelings at this point maybe a hint of the strange dereliction that Jesus himself felt, feeling that his own father had turned against him? Can you imagine Isaac's feelings, his meek submission to his father? Isaac is to believed, uh, he's believed to be, have been in his 30s, just as Jesus was, and Abraham was an old man. That, you know, Isaac really probably could have overtaken his father. If he, so it really shows that he was submissive in this. And this is drawn from the passage in particular, which says, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked on together. A little boy couldn't carry the weight of all the wood on his shoulders. Remember all that. And then when you see him lying down, allowing himself to be bound on the rock, Isaac is a beautiful picture of Jesus, but there's one huge difference. An angel stopped Abraham, but no angel stopped Calvary. That's the big difference here. That's where the parallel breaks down. That's where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
No angel put his hand out and said, stop, stop. But an angel did with Isaac. And there are a few things that I've noted here. And one is because God wanted Abraham, not Isaac. God wanted a living heart, not a dead one. And he knew that he'd gotten what he, he'd gotten that. When he told Abraham in scripture, it says that he said, now I know that you fear me. And another point is that Isaac wasn't an adequate sacrifice. Also, the parallel has not only broken down here, it's been switched around. Isaac becomes a type and a shadow, a model, not of Christ, but of the Christian whose life is saved by the sacrifice of another. So we now look at Isaac not to see Jesus, but ourselves. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for the burnt offering instead of his son. When the angel told Abraham to stop, Abraham looked up and he saw a ram, which is a full grown lamb with its head caught in the thorns. So caught in the thicket by its horn, which is its head. Can you believe that? Does that remind you of anything at the cross? If you haven't seen in the cross that it was God the father raising the knife against his son, Jesus, and again, can you see the cross illustrated through the ram with its head caught in the thorns dying in your place? We're now seeing the cross through something that happened 2000 years before Jesus came. Its head was caught in the thicket, so it was offered up instead. What was God saying? Do you notice by the way that Abraham had to look up to see the ram? You always have to look up to see the ram. Repentance draws us to look up. You have to repent to see the ram that can be offered in your place. You need to look up and face in a new direction. Then, then you see the ram and know that there's a substitute for you in death. God was saying first, I don't want Isaac. He's not good enough. Second, he's saying, I do need sacrifice. Third, he's saying, I will provide a sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Whatever God requires from you, he'll give to you. So I want us to think through that. He never asks for anything from us that he's not first given to us. And fourth, he's saying, I will provide. And so I know that's a lot that um, we've just covered, trying to hurry, kind of scurry even through the scriptures. Um, but it's also important and it's laying a foundation for us to really have some depth of understanding as we're following the storyline the Lord has for us. And he's starting us out here in Genesis, revealing to us something special about this nation of Israel. And we're, as we continue on through the weeks and months, we're going to see this building. And I, I pray with all of my heart that the Lord will open the eyes of our understanding to help us see how all of this begins to fit together. You know, I have often said, and it's, it's a quote that's out there, but you can't understand the um, New Testament without looking into the Old Testament. You won't fully understand it. We've got to first understand who God is through the Old Testament. There's a lot of people that look at um, the Bible and, and they call themselves the New Testament believers. Like they think, oh, that's old. It doesn't even apply anymore. Jesus came, we're under grace, not the law. So we just throw all that away. But Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And in Acts 3.21, it says that he, speaking of Jesus, must remain in heaven until 
the time for the final restoration of all things as was spoken by the holy prophets long ago. So Jesus is waiting, remaining in heaven until these things are fulfilled that the prophets spoke of. So this is saying, this is part of the restoration of the kingdom, but what we're gonna see is it's gonna culminate with the restoration of his kingdom on earth, beginning with Israel, and he's going to, it's going to usher in the return of our king. So we're seeing all of these things begin to take place as we're watching the news, as we're watching prophecy unfold before our very eyes. And I think that should draw us all the more into this close place of abiding in his word. I love uh, just the story. And I think I, what's in my heart just to share with everybody is, you know, God could have given us his word uh, as an academic tome, um, but he really gave it to us as a story. And what does that say about God as the master storyteller? Um, and like you said, Krista, you know, everything that we're living in now, we look back and, and Genesis is so rich to understand the origins of humanity, but also the origins of God's divine purpose and bringing forth the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. And we know this to be Jesus and tracing the seed from, you know, through Abraham uh, down through Israel. Israel goes in, he gives them the Mosaic Covenant, which we'll read about obviously in Exodus. And we're going to touch on King David as we go down and how through these different covenants, God fulfills his original intent, which was to restore and redeem all of mankind. So um, I just love thinking about God as the, the master storyteller. And just like in the, in the first chapters, there's a tree of life. At the very end of, the, of Revelation, there's a tree of life. You know, there's rivers flowing in the Garden of Eden, and there's rivers flowing in the New Jerusalem. And I just love the symmetry, uh, and a good storyteller will always bring you back to where everything began, take you on a journey and bring you back, except it will be even better than it was before everything fell apart. And so there's much to look forward to as God is, as you said, Acts 321, he's going to remain in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things um, that the prophets have foretold. So Great job tonight, Krista. It's been a blessing. Amen. Um, uh, my wife and I are here. Um, um, she's sitting on the other side of the room. Her name is Hortensia. You guys can see her on the screen. So I just want to say this is a tremendous blessing. Um, I also have to thank God and the revelations that we are receiving from you today. It's, it's just so amazing. I mean, you hit certain, certain core uh, uh, of the scriptures that, uh, to be quite frank, I, you know, especially on the parallels, which is the parallel that you mentioned about Isaac and uh, um, a foreshadowing of how uh, of who we are and who Christ is, uh, looking at the lamb that God provided for humanity and how we are Isaac. We can be Isaac if we choose to be, but that God, uh, you know, is saying that uh, throughout history, man was never uh, able to be that perfect sacrificial lamb. Uh, uh, but God provided one for all of humanity. So, I mean, I mean, I'm learning so much, especially when you talk about um, all of humanity falls underneath um, uh, uh, either Cain or Abel. When it, when it, when in reference to um, what God wants from us and what He expects from us, uh, talking about the offerer and the offering, He expects both of them to be perfect in His own way in God's own way, not human, uh, human beings. And I was just, I mean, there's so much here, to be honest with you. I wanted to ask if the video, uh, so much to digest, but I wanted to ask if the video would, because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your website right now, if the videos that we have 
uh, will be there so we can go back and, and do some reviewing and take some good notes slowly and just you know slowly digest it because it was it was a lot and I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to be part of this because my mama knows I get excited about the things of God and this is what makes my day nothing else amen amen and yes they will they will be posted on the website Terrence, I, I have to agree with you 100% on there is so much for us to chew on. And I'm just convalescing from a hip replacement. So um, this was just such perfect timing. I mean, to be invited into this and to know that we're invited to a new walk. We're invited into a new year. We're invited to new revelation. And I just believe with all my heart that this is a, a divine time. And I'm, I'm thankful. And you know, really one of the things that I'm excited about as well is to me, I feel like this, we're doing what the early church did. We're gathering together a fellowship of believers. You know, the church is not a building. It's not the four walls. You know, the Holy Spirit resides within us. And whenever we come to or get more gathered together, he's here in our midst. You know, we are the body of Christ. And so um, this is, this is good, you know, just to get back. The Bible even says, you know, when if we're struggling with what is the right way to go, the Bible says, look for the ancient path and go in that way. And so here we are, ancient paths, gathering around at the table with fellow believers, praise the Lord, and searching the scriptures together. Because really the thing is that's a, that I think is key is Christ is the head of the church. That's what he said. It's not the pastor. He's appointed a pastor to lead. But it, also, though, the whole intention is that the Lord works through the body. There's giftings and callings in each one of us, and we can minister to one another through the Holy Spirit that's within each of us. We all have something to bring. This is why he said, you know, that uh, all about all the parts, about the eye, and, you know, there's no insignificant part in the body, that we all have something to bring to the table for one another. You know, Krista, it reminds me, everyone else as well, you know, oftentimes Jesus would be out and he would share a parable. And those that were listening were dazed and confused. And so were his apostles. And it was beat when they would return back to that place where they were just with him. I like to think that maybe they didn't have a table, but they were sitting at a table and they were able to say, you know, we heard it, but we really didn't understand. Can you break that down? And I can just see our Lord and Savior sitting and talking to them, making sure that they could understand. And they were able to ask the questions that they wouldn't necessarily ask out in public. Because, you know, most of us don't want the world or anyone else to know what we don't know. Amen. And there is much that we don't know, but in that place where, again, it's safe, that place where we're comfortable, then we can ask those things that we really want an answer to. And to be able to express, you know, I heard that, but I didn't quite get it. Can you help me out with this? And so when I see this, I see him and believe and know, yes, through the Holy Spirit, but God will do it again because that's what he does. I just, um, I just think this is uh, 
an amazing and a holy invitation. And I think it's a, a I think it's just the way um, of the world right now. And what a beautiful and simplistic way to involve technology and what an amazing uh, thing that we can fill the internet with God's word and just, um, just fill the airways and the internet with God's word while using technology. This is amazing. And we don't know where we're going to be uh, in the next few months. And so we have church online and this is beautiful. So I'm just amazed by Jesus. I'm, I'm amazed by him. Uh, every day to me is a miracle, every day. Great to uh, get to hear everybody's voice and see some faces. Looking forward to building community together and fellowship. But as we've been talking, uh, I've just felt this, the spirit stir me uh, to read, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And, you know, when the apostle Paul wrote that, obviously there was no New Testament. He's in his mind, he's thinking of the scriptures we're reading right now, you know, and so to reinforce, you know, obviously the New Testament is incredibly important. Um, but as Krista said earlier, as we're walking through the Old Testament, we're living in a day and age where God's word is being more and more disrespected and cast aside, and it's more important and more relevant than it's ever been. And as we look at these stories, we're going to be covering so much scripture in the week. I just feel the Lord inviting us. As we're reading through it, these stories are not, they're not just stories, they're examples. You know, Abraham was, is not an exception. He's an example of a man of faith walking with God. David isn't, an, we, we can't, it's not like we can't attain to have lives of faith like these great heroes. Sometimes we can get disconnected from the story and think, well, I'm no, I'm no one. I'm no one like David, or I can't be like Joseph, or I'm not like Daniel, or I'm not like whoever. But I just feel the Lord inviting us in that there's lessons for each one of us this year through these stories and to not just blast through, but just to take your time and invite the Holy Spirit to that training in righteousness and instruction and correction and, and just encouragement from these stories that we're going to read. And so many of them are, are littered throughout the Old Testament that lay the foundation for what Jesus and the apostles lay on in the New Testament. So Anyway, I'm super encouraged, and God bless you, you guys. Um, and you want me to go ahead and pray, Krista? Yes, unless anybody has any other closing comments. All right. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we just read, all scripture is God-breathed. We thank you that you spoke and everything was created. You're the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you spoke and you gave us your written word, and it's been proved historically, it's been proved prophetically, it's been proved experientially. Um, Lord, your word never returns void, and we're grateful that we have uh, scriptures to guide us, to shape us, to correct us, to teach us, to train us. And so just invite you in at the start of this year, Lord, as we start at the beginning of the story and work our way through each person, each family, those that haven't yet even joined the, the, the community that you're going to be sending, that your word would be like that river of living water that would just affect our hearts and change the geography of our souls. Lord, water changes landscape. 
rain and the ocean and rivers carve up the geography. You just invite your voice and your word to affect our souls and our hearts, Lord, that you could shape the geography of our hearts and souls by the power of your word, the Logos word and the Rhema word, Lord, as we listen or we read the word and you move that it would affect us. We're, we don't want to just have empty religion. We want to have living relationship with you. And so I just pray you'd meet with us, each person individually. And Lord, we, we cast down our vain imaginations. Lord, we don't, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We don't need other opinions of people. We need your voice and, and we need love. And so I pray that love would abound and, and bind our hearts together first to you and then to one another as brothers and sisters uh, at a table of love and friendship and community. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.